welcome back to the Fortune in Charge novel review. We continue chapter eight in this episode. Al was feeling good, riding high where we left him last episode. However, as his pattern, when he falls, he falls very hard. He experiences college life briefly and gains a group of college friends who refer to him as the legend um, for all of his wild tales he recalls. To live up to the name, he never says no to parties or nights out, which soon drains his money and he must abstain for a little. With him now saying no, the group loses interest and stops calling him, and he sinks into a depression. Morrow is also gone, as he moves to Florida to be with his mother dying of lung cancer, so there is no one to console Al or get him out of his funk. Al becomes unreliable at work, gets fired from his landscaping job, works for a little while as a longshoreman through Mara's connection, but also loses interest in that too, falling into the pit of himself and fired um, from other jobs. Um, in his depression, Al realizes that it is solely himself to blame for everything wrong in his life. However, this is not a catharsis that leads to a change, but a return to an escalated state uh, once the depression subsides. His idea of taking control is to take advantage of the trusting San Francisco State students and steal a laptop while on campus. The simple plan goes awry as he is spotted and arrested by police. And our segment concludes with Al finishing his jail time and making his way to Florida to join Morrow. With Al, a person who emerges somewhat as the central character, or at least the majority of the narrative devoted to his point of view, I wanted to show a person whom we sympathize, sympathize with um, and his plight, but also a cautionary figure to an extent. Navigating through life is very difficult for Al. It is debatable if it is something he was born with or a series of unfortunate events that formed uh, the person we see lost as an adult. However, I think Al also acts um, to amplify uh, how admirable all the other characters in the novel are. There are people who have had dreams and are living with the reality that the dream um, has not and likely will not be fulfilled. However, they keep pressing on. They stay composed and disciplined and are often sacrificing for their family or society at large. Al lacks these traits, and we see the downfall when a person is driven by ego and not willing to work consistently or are too impulsive or angry when they do not get what they want quick enough. There is so much beauty and pride in the everyday person. And as the narrative shifts to the more crime-ridden and violent, hopefully these individuals uh, push that idea of the immense bravery and resolve of just being a decent person. Inspiration. When I write, I often do not know exactly where the narrative will be headed. I may not really even know what the narrative will be. However, with this novel, I always saw where I wanted it to go, where Al would be at the end. But the challenge was how to get him there. I think with Al, as I allude to slightly in uh, the chapter, I align with um, chapter one, rather. Um, I align him 
with Daryl uh, Bundren in um, William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. Likely a tinge of Charles Bukowski as well. Fundamentally, a person who cannot fit within society, who is bound to be chewed up and spit out, or eventually uh, taken away entirely. His actions are his own fault, but also somehow beyond him. This disconnect where he cannot figure it out. These highs and lows without steady middles. Craft and structure. There is this moment at the beginning of the episode segment that hints at a deeper illumination within Al. One that we really haven't seen too specifically or articulately. Oddly enough, it comes up in conversation with Jeremy when Jeremy asks why Philly sports fans are so rowdy and labeled as violent. Al responds with this deep analysis of the city and its inhabitants, using his curmudgeon neighbor as an example of what the city can do to a person. They can find spaces, the arduous, unstimulating work, and the feeling of being trapped, leading fans, when watching the sport, to have this immense hostility and violence toward anyone encroaching their territory. This solitary misery melding into this mass fervor and defensiveness. Essentially, it is Al. In this moment, I saw it as a glimpse of who he is, for better or worse, and what he could be. He's possibly at his closest to being reformed, but he is doomed to once again repeat old patterns. After the campus tour, Jeremy took Al to an off-campus pub called the Dubliner. Al was resolute in drinking with some degree of restraint these days, but the tour left him in such a state of euphoria and comfort that he was willing to loosen the reins and revert to his days as a 21-year-old with the world at his feet. Jeremy ordered a pair of shots of Captain Morgan, which he had not drunk since Bobby's college graduation party, and Bobby's daddy even joined them in the celebratory toast. It was hot going down, but it felt good. He would allow Jeremy to continue the tour and how he felt fit tonight. For a brief moment, Al even told himself this is where he belonged. He went to the college. His life was moving along smoothly, and his future would be bright and promising. The Dubliner was covered in Irish paraphernalia, shamrock strung lights on the ceiling, old harp and Guinness signs on the walls with the toucan proudly perched on a weather vane, and a glass of that starkly black and tan spirit on its beak, black and white photographs of Irish streets and houses, granulated portraits of house faces, pallid and dark, gaunt, hollow, and haunting. Jeremy and Al discussed Jeremy's area of expertise and the evolution of discovery and reporting information, how the internet and social media had altered the conveyance of ideas, and the merit and harm of guerrilla journalism. They drank their pints without discretion, enraptured in their conversation and learning from one another. Jeremy asked Al questions about Philadelphia. He was curious as to whether or not the sports fans were as rabid as was rumored. Al boasted that they were, which led Jeremy into a momentary lapse of incredulity and judgment. It was not based on his own allegiance to the local San Francisco sports teams, but the nature of fandom as a whole. Jeremy understood the enjoyment of watching a sport, even though he was not wholly as interested in sports as others, as well as how that team represented your city or region, and therefore a point of pride. However, to scream and curse and fight someone allegiant to another team appeared ludicrous to him. To bend the reality of a sport into the reality of an actual world. 
It did not seem worth it to inflict harm on someone else and risk your own well-being for a sport and source of entertainment that was meant as an escape and whose owners, employees, and players only cared for their fans based solely on monetary benefits. Al had rarely considered this point of view and never thought too deeply about the psychology of the fan, why he liked to watch the sport and root for his team and wear his team's jersey and apparel, and was shocked not to be accosted by someone here in San Francisco for wearing a Phillies hat or Eagles shirt. They did not say a word, not even a, hey, they suck. They just looked and moved on. He pondered this and responded to Jeremy after taking a long gulp from his pint. You have so much going on for you here. Mild weather, friendly people, exciting new jobs. You have the privilege of going outside and simply enjoying it. People in Philadelphia and much of the East Coast do not have such opportunities. The weather is terrible, the people are abrasive, and most jobs are dead or some type of grunt work. Now there's not much that can be done about the weather, and though there is a sense of oh well within that, it also threatens a person's agency. They're at the mercy of the weather and therefore feel angry and trapped. Compound that with our density. I grew up in a row home and my neighbor would pound on my wall if I played my stereo, not even loud, mind you, past 9.30 p.m. We had a sliver of a concrete yard and my brother and I would play basketball on the net my mom saved up working two jobs to buy us for Christmas when I was seven. If the ball ever crossed the chain link fence into my neighbor's yard, I had to hop over because he locked the gate so I couldn't come in and he'd glare at me with his Coke bottle glasses out of his kitchen window. All I could see was that little shine reflecting off of his glasses and back out of the window, but I knew he was furious. I used to mutter curse words at him and say he was a mean old man and wonder why he had such a hatred for me and playing basketball. But it wasn't a hatred for me. It was a hatred for being this old man, working at a now defunct factory his whole life, retired and now ready for peace and relaxation. And he had to hear his neighbor's stereo and the basketball bouncing on concrete and clanking on the plastic backboard and rattling through the chain net. And then seeing that ball bounce over to his yard and likely smack against his garage door. It was because he lived and would continue to live his life with no room, lying next to his wife, standing shoulder to shoulder with his coworker on the assembly line, and then right next to his neighbor without even a few inches for an alleyway. So when someone who's experienced life in a similar fashion to my neighbor, he is relieved to be out and seeing the defined space of the playing field, the rules and defined penalties for the out of bounds and encroachment. And in the experience, he forgets the pains of his life and gets swept up in the pursuit of winning. But then there's the opponent, and that opponent is the amalgamation of all the pain and oppression in his life. Truly the enemy, that is the ultimate encroacher and would-be usurper, coming into his city and his team's stadium and trying to deny victory for their home. Those players on the field are untouchable, but for some fan to then have the gall to come into Philadelphia and root for the enemy's victory is unthinkable. And so, yes, that person is then yelled and cursed at and threatened and sometimes fought, for they are the encroacher and it is assumed have a better life than a person of this city. Al took a deep breath and then a sip from his pint. You have this look like you've never said such a thing before, Jeremy said gently. I don't think I could repeat all that if I tried. I'd never really thought about it before. It's amazing how someone must leave home to realize what it is. Al took off his Phillies hat, examining the distinct P on the front and turning it around to see the Liberty Bell emblem. I love it, cracks and all. To Philadelphia, Jeremy raised his glass. To Philadelphia. As the night went on, a few of Jeremy's friends joined the Dubliner. Jeremy and his friends did a few more shots and Al was able to converse with Bryn and Warren in particular, as they both joined Al out for cigarette breaks. 
they were a couple and also attended SFSU as business management majors that had high aspirations of being entrepreneurs and opening a business together. Their ideas were somewhat all over the map, but their enthusiasm was riveting. Al offered his services to whatever their venture would be, and they excitedly exchanged contact information with one another. He was suddenly enthusiastic with them, imagining the thrill of starting a business from the ground up and helping it to grow. They seemed to be a good match romantically, and as business partners, with Warren seeming to be more creative and idea-driven, and Bryn more practical and logistically oriented. Al's euphoria led him to speeding his drinking pace, finishing a pint every 10 minutes or so. Jeremy's other friends, Noel and Sabrina, seemed to be fairly laid back and interested in knowing more about Al, and Cass was energetic and concerned about the next beer, cocktail, shot, and what the group would do next. As the bar reached last call, the party continued at Noel's house, four blocks away. It certainly had the aesthetic of a college house with a menagerie of psychedelic glow-in-the-dark posters, Pink Floyd album artwork, and beer cases cut out and collaged on the wall in the living slash dining room, with the only exception being no unfinished basement for beer pong, as Al was accustomed to when going to parties at Temple, St. Joe's, and LaSalle. Instead of cup games, the group played a dice game called Three Men, which led to more chugging and rapid beer drinking. Al struck up a good conversation with everyone in the group and flirted with Sabrina for a bit. No one brought up his age and how he was significantly older than everyone. If anything, they seemed to admire Al for that and were attentive to his every word, like little brothers and sisters. He got fairly drunk and ended up taking some hits from a smoking bowl they were passing around. He felt somewhat regretful in doing this since he had promised himself he would stay off drugs, but everyone had smoked and they were fine young people whom he also wanted to make a good impression with and not be some square who refused to smoke a ubiquitous and innocuous drug like marijuana. He slept until the afternoon the next day and was awakened by Morrow coming home from the docks. He smelled of fish, sweat, and gasoline and had grime caked on his face, hands, and jumper. He glared at Al dolefully and Al groggily opened his eyes and clumsily looked at his phone to check the time. Ah, oh, man, 1.30. Rough night? Yeah, went to SFSU with this kid Jeremy I work with. Met his friends and all. Yeah. What's up? I thought we were going to stay clean. Eli said you nearly knocked the TV over when you came in. You were so drunk. I just had a few too many. It wasn't anything major. They were good kids. Just trying to meet people around here. Yeah. Mara put down his lunchbox and readjusted his mare's cap. Also soiled. Listen, man, I called my mom a few days ago. She's not doing that good. She got diagnosed with lung cancer. I'm sorry, man. It's just been bugging me thinking about her. I don't know. I don't want her to die without me seeing her. We got to make peace on a few things. Okay, I get that. So I'm heading to Florida. If I work for a few more weeks, I'll have enough for a plane ticket. You're welcome to come too, but you know, you don't have to. Are you staying there for good? Well, I probably won't have enough money to fly back, at least not now. I'll stay with her in her condo, see what job I can get down there. At least I won't be smelly and filthy like when we are right here, right now being the exception. I can let you know how it goes. Maybe they'll have some good jobs. We could work at Disney World. Good Lord, that'll be the day. I get it, man. I'm going to miss you, brother, but good luck. I'm going to stick around here, at least for now. No getting into any shit. You do the same. Three weeks later, Morrow had enough money and he was gone. Al said something forgettable the day he left, like take it easy or don't get into trouble, when he should have dropped the whole machismo act and expressed how much he valued Morrow as a friend and how he'd never be able to repay the loyalty and love Morrow had given him. Al at least was not left alone. 
He got along fairly well with his roommates, and they passed the time watching football or basketball and played sports games on the PlayStation. He also enjoyed his job, bringing in steady pay, quickly learning about the city, and working with a jolly crew of Mexicans who taught him at least one Spanish sentence and dirty word each day. He also grew closer to Jeremy and his group of friends, spending weekends at the bars around SFSU or going to house parties. Jeremy and his friends started to call him the legend for all of the elaborate tales he would tell his group of college students, and it gave him a feeling he hadn't had since his days in high school, popular and admired for his wild abandon. He was having good luck with women, sleeping with a few during house parties, and currently sleeping with Sabrina nearly every night over the past two weeks. It was understood that it wasn't anything serious, which was fine. Al was grateful to be with someone so young, thin, and attractive. Female strangers would even fuss over how handsome he was, which seemed to be just West Coast politeness at first until it became a regular occurrence, saying he looked rugged and like some kind of indie actor they could not quite put their finger on. Warren and Bryn continued to discuss their business aspirations, which always made him excited and fulfilled some pioneering fantasy that had laid dormant in him for some time. He was moderate with smoking and drinking, though there were a few more uninhibited nights mixed in. Nevertheless, he seemed to be smoothing out his edges, so to speak, becoming less guarded and concerned about how to play someone, how to read their tells, their vulnerabilities, and try to take advantage. Now he just wanted to bask in the warm weather and mellow people without some deeper motive in mind, like he had in the bad days of gambling and drug dealing, sniffing out the flaw in the bet or how to squeeze out a few extra dollars by bluffing about the quality of the product. This trait of continuous ulterior motive, especially in his days of theft, spotting the unprotected house or car, the imbecile who was too trusting in society and people, and Al striking and teaching a hard truth to that person that he or she would take to the grave. If anything, he would be the one keeping the door unlocked now, opting to invest in humanity's virtues rather than anticipating its vices. But he pushed a little too far, bet too big as he always had, testing Fortuna's wheel one more time. He stayed up late partying with Jeremy and his crew, burdened with some fictional responsibilities the legend to take the most shots, have the largest bowl hit, chug the beer the fastest. He began turning down no opportunity. How could he, when they called him saying, legend, I know you'll come out with us tonight. He would go out weeknights, blow his money and oversleep for work the next day. After about six of these infractions and one day too hungover to show up at all, he was fired. His roommates, in recovery and uncomfortable with his behavior, also gave him the ultimatum to either stop partying or he would have to live someplace else. He first asked Jeremy and his friends if they had space available for him, but they either charged more than he could afford compared to the halfway house or were hesitant for him to stay if he did not have steady income. So he decided to abstain for a while and keep some distance with this young crowd. It was easy enough. They would call and he'd say he was currently sober. They'd say, good for you, stay strong, and then never call him again. They were not any blessing on humanity. They were like anyone else when it came down to it, flawed and selfish, ready to move on when a person is no longer convenient or entertaining. He scoured the streets of San Francisco looking for work, but could not find anything that appealed to him or would hire him with his lack of qualifications, besides mowing lawns, delivering pizzas, and a year of flunking out of college. He eventually resorted to taking a job as a longshoreman, using Morrow as a reference. The hours were early and the work was arduous. Standing on the cool dock in utter darkness, smelling the putrid smell of fish and brine, each step he walked irrevocably on a wet and grimy surface, black sludge and algae all around him as if the ocean coughed up all of its mucus and disease. All day, unloading crate after crate, 
his back stiff and immobile from unnatural burden. A job solitary even though surrounded by a myriad of other workers, forced early to keep quiet in order to monitor inventory accurately. Each item belonging on a certain pallet, on a certain contain, on a certain shelf. The incongruous melodic sound of waves delicately ebbing and flowing into eternity with the grating alarm of a forklift backing up or a crane hoisting a pallet onto land. He grew impatient, ornery, and barren of the excitement of this new setting. Shunned from an enthusiastic and vibrant crowd, a young man so marvelously adept at listening and conversing, and his equally spirited friends, and Warren and Bryn and their enormous plans they were going to include him in. They did not formally extinguish their friendship, but as the days continued with no contact, he became very bitter and insecure and fell into the low pit of himself, the pit he had not been in since his days in Philadelphia. This darkness coursing through his veins, depriving him of all vivid touch. Feeling, smell, sight, sound, and taste seem some disconnected memory, only without some invisible serpent tightly wound on each fiber of his skin. His mind without sight, not even present enough to view a football or basketball game on TV, nor play video games with any intent with his roommates. All competitiveness and drive sucked out of him. It happened times before in high school, in days working with his father and at Patrico's, in slumming it in a one-room apartment in Taconi with Morrow. It was not drugs or alcohol. It was not friends or family. It was not environment. It was eternally him. During this incapacitation, he was no use to anyone or anything. He stayed in bed day after day and did not even bother to pick up the phone to hear he had been fired. Funny how some people feared such a thing, losing your job. By now, it was like the paper not coming in the morning. There was most likely a reason, but it would probably come the next day. Anyhow, there wasn't anything too compelling to read in there anyway, besides the sports lines and spreads. When he broke out of his darkness, he was overwhelmed with light and vitality. His cup runneth over, suddenly in fervent command of all things. He was weeks late on the rent he suddenly concerned himself about, and his roommates daily threatened to kick him out. Springing from his bed, he clearly had the plan worked out and hopped on the closest bus to San Francisco State University. They were also trusting and assured, those college students. He blended in with a school bag of his own and his acne scars gave him the appearance of a young adult just emerging from adolescence. When he arrived on campus, he put his Phillies hat down low, walking with purpose and subterfuge while still attempting to be somewhat nonchalant, stopping and feigning writing in a composition book like some undergrad asked to write a free verse poem about everyday life on campus. He continued walking, taking note of his most fruitful opportunities. Girls were sunbathing on the fields outside of Thornton Hall, their bags seemingly unattended. A student waiting in line at a food truck, leaving his laptop open and by itself on a picnic table. Three students comparing notes on a bench, deeply invested in the assignment and a laptop clearly visible in the opened black Jansport. He thought about making a move, but the campus which was much too deserted and he would easily be spotted. He moved toward the J. Paul Leonard Library, the aquamarine blue windowed building, the sun shining through the transparent facade, the palm tree swaying gently in the breeze, the emerald green, finely trimmed grass with no divot or weed in sight. As Al reached Quad Plaza, teams of young people suddenly burst on the clean walkways, indicating the transition of classes. Walking along in the crowd, Al perfectly blended in as just another student. At the side entrance of the library, he noticed two young girls talking. One was intently looking at the other, nodding her head contemplatively and periodically sipping from her coffee. 
Her skin was a smooth bronze and hair black like velvet, most likely of Spanish descent. The other student speaking and circling her hands as if knitting a crochet sweater was surprisingly pale for living in California and had dull red hair. The pair moved over to a bench in front of the library and sat down to continue their conversation. The redhead then opened up her school bag to produce a book for her dark haired friend. As she took the book out, Al unmistakably saw the shining silver of a laptop. He walked swiftly, head down, but made sure not to run. As he moved closer, he veered from the crowd of students on the walkway and continued through the grass to the library bench. A bicycler crossed his path as he approached, followed by a trio of young men with matching SFSU soccer attire. He could see the small glimmer of the brunette's hazel eyes and the redhead's blue eyes as they sat on the bench in profile. Both women were beautiful and spoke with his ardency, fascinated by whatever subject they shared. He kept his head to the ground, shifting his head to the left as he approached their right, the school bag on the ground closest to the redhead. He thought about sprinting over, but that would draw too much attention. He would surely sprint after, but he figured he may be lucky enough to pick up the bag without either girl noticing initially, and then he would be gone. He moved in, close enough to hear the redhead say, the verisimilitude of Arabi, and reached for the bag. It was in his hands, and he was ready to take off when he felt a smack across his face hard enough for his Phillies hat to fall from his head. Stunned, he locked eyes with the redhead, who must have delivered the instinctual blow and then began to run away. He, he was impeded for a moment, which felt like an eternity, as the redhead clung to the bag and began to scream. With all of his desperate strength, he pulled the bag forward, and it was out of her hands and he was gone. He sprinted out into Holloway Avenue, where he saw a police car approaching in the distance. He walked at a quick pace down the avenue and dumped the redhead school bag out in a bush, aside from her laptop and transpass, and placed the items in his bag. Al achingly wanted to gallop away, but it would be too obvious, so he continued down Holloway at a brisk pace. He swore he could faintly still hear her screaming as he trotted along with her valuables and turned on Tapia Drive. Assimilating back with the crowds, he traversed the campus with his head way down. As he passed the Cesar Chavez Student Center, he heard a walkie-talkie dispatch like the prisoner hears the fatal gunshot from the firing squad, and he quickly began to weave between the students in the crowd. He saw a campus security officer coming down the path on his right on bicycle, two others fighting their way through the crowd up ahead. Al ducked below the headline to the crowd and darted down a small walkway to his left. Walkie-talkies seemed to be chirping all around him, that discordant dispatch signal stinging his ears every time. He ran in between Thornton Hall and Hensel Hall, two identical buildings, pale industrial limestone, like two ancient white sepulchers. He bounded down the steep stone steps, narrow and indifferent, the two colossal sepulchral shatters at his back, and reaching the bottom for an instant, felt the kind California sun shining down before two officers tackled him into the unforgiving concrete. The handcuffs pressed hard against his wrists, the pain sharp and persisting. He reasoned it was supposed to hurt. That was the point not like toy cuffs he and Cody would play with when they were kids. That seemed so inconceivable when he was young, to be the bad guy, the criminal. People were just bad because they were bad when you're young. There's no real understanding of desperation or what it is like to starve or be without a home, to be either born crazy or made crazy by the world and bitter and not divining which one it was. A part of him wanted to tell the bald-headed, indefatigable officer driving him to the city hall jail exactly what happened, to confess it all in one fantastic burst. 
If only people could blurt everything, all experiences and microscopic cause and effects for why they were where they currently were and why they acted the way they did in one all-conclusive boom for everyone to understand. But no, people needed description and names and times and dates, and they brought in their own twisted experiences to contort everything even further. However, he suppressed the urge to speak. It was the one thing he knew, not to speak. Don't speak when they arrest you and book you. Don't speak to anyone but your lawyer. Don't speak to anyone in jail. Just sit there and exist. It was the only way to get out alive. They booked him for petty theft at the station, the laptop as evidence, and the redhead a clear witness. His mugshot was taken. He was given the orange jumpsuit and placed in a cell with three other men. They had him dead to rights for the crime, with various security cameras around campus showing a man in a Phillies hat, which the redhead had in her possession when they found her in front of the library, screaming hysterically. He had wondered how they could ID him from that alone when the detective finished his thought saying a student, a friend of the young redhead lady, had recognized the hat. He wanted to believe it wasn't Jeremy who betrayed him, and it may well have been one of Jeremy's friends, but it didn't matter. You test fortune too often, and you have to pay. Even as guilty of the charges he seemed to be, it was only petty theft, and he served eight days in prison, it being his first offense. He could not complain too severely about the stay since it was so brief, but in those eight days, he did not sleep nor say a single word to another inmate or officer besides his name, and that he was not carrying any contraband on his person. Some of the prisoners seemed to be more hardened criminals, covered in tattoos that seemed to be gang-affiliated and with this simultaneous twisted scowl and aura of delight, as if to intimidate through violence or humiliation. It was fine. He kept his head low, did not speak, and stayed out of everyone's way. When he returned to his apartment upon his release, his things were wantonly packed up in a trash bag in the living room. Not saying a word to his roommates, who had not taken their eyes off the TV as they were playing each other in Madden, he picked up the trash bag and left. Al then called Maro, and Maro immediately offered for Al to come down and stay in Tampa. Al was wired a few hundred dollars for Maro for his Greyhound fare, and in four days, he was in Florida. Thank you again for listening. Please visit Amazon for reading options and follow on Instagram at Matthew Glasgow Author for updates. Join us next time as we conclude Chapter 8 and grow closer to the conclusion of Fortune and Charge.